the Bright case out of Houston that happened uh, about two years ago where a small child fell down in the driveway and hit their head and it caused a skull fracture. It was a complete accident. There was one doctor in this hospital where the child went to that said, oh, I think this is abuse and pushed for these kids to be removed. And a series of really, really bad decisions were made within the department. Okay, welcome to the next episode of TextLedge, the Austin Institute's podcast on all things Texas legislature. Uh, I am your host, Dr. Kevin Stewart. I'm also the executive director of the Austin Institute. Uh, the issue we will be talking about today is child welfare services, um, and specifically the foster system and other parts of, of that system. And with me today to talk about that, um, this is a really important issue. It has been important for the last couple sessions and uh, bids fair to be so again this session. So that's why we're going to kind of lead into the issue-based part of the show with this. And joining me today is someone who knows more about this issue and more about where things are headed than anybody else. He will deny that, but that's the <laughs> truth. Um, with me is Andrew C. Brown. Uh, he's a, a JD, so he's an attorney and the director of the Center for Families and Children at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Andrew has dedicated his career to serving vulnerable children and strengthening families through community-focused, liberty-minded solutions. Uh, he earned a BA magna cum laude in political science from Baylor University, and his JD is from Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law. Um, and with that, Andrew, welcome. Kevin, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great to have you. So I just want to dive right in and say, is my understanding as a as a non-native Texan, but as a proud resident of Texas, I own a truck now, so I'm a real Texan. Um, Texas used to have a rep as one of the worst places for child welfare services, CPS, foster care system, however we might want to speak about it. Um, one of the worst in the country. Take us through the background and the history of, of that, that reputation. Right. And this really started in earnest and came to the attention of the public about 10 years ago when the state was sued in federal court because of, quite frankly, the horrifying conditions that kids in the permanent care of our child welfare system were facing. And I say permanent care because there's two different types of care, really, for a child when they enter foster care in Texas. You have temporary conservatorship, which is your general, what most people think about when they're thinking about a child in foster care. It's a child who's been removed from their home. The family's working through services. The goal is to reunite that child with their family. If that child's not going to be able to be reunited, then we adopt that child to another family. Kids who enter the permanent care of the state are kids who have had their parental rights terminated, uh, but have not been adopted for whatever reason, are going to spend the rest of their young lives in foster care until they turn 18. And the state is, for all intents and purposes, going to be their parent. So this lawsuit focused on that narrow group of kids who were in the permanent care of the state. And there were a number of issues going on, you know, anywhere from the use of psychotropic medications to control kids' behaviors to just abuse going on in the system itself. Kids in uh, residential treatment in these homes 
either abusing each other or being abused um, by people who were supposed to be their caregivers. And this all kind of came to a head when the state was sued by a group called Children's Rights for these conditions. Um, the federal judge obviously ruled against the state. And one of the telling things in the opinion that came out when the judge ruled against Texas was she said, kids enter the permanent care of the state in Texas and almost uniformly leave worse off they, than when they entered. And that to me is an indictment of the way the system was caring for kids. In the years since that lawsuit, the state has taken huge, huge steps to reform the system, most notably back in 2017 when we completely redesigned our foster care system and moved away from the centralized system managed by the state government based in Austin and shifted to something that we call community-based care. So essentially what that did was it took the responsibility away from the Department of Family and protective services in Austin to run everything. And it shifted responsibilities for caring for kids in foster care, managing their cases to the local communities, cut up the state into a bunch of different regions. And in each region, you have a lead nonprofit entity that is responsible for managing foster care in that region. What we've seen in the few years since moving toward community-based care is in the regions where that's operating, there's about four regions right now where community-based care is operating, outcomes for kids have already dramatically improved. Kids are being placed in foster homes that are closer to the home from which they were removed. They're having more contact with siblings and family members. Our reunification numbers are looking pretty good. Um, just about any data point you can think of, the community responsiveness has made things better for kids in care. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> Thanks for that. Um, that's very helpful background. I want to say a lot of us, I've never had contact with the child welfare system. Um, I have two kids, so thank God for that. But um, I want to ask, this seems to be something that goes on in the background or sort of right under our noses without most of us ever noticing it. So give us a sense of scope and scale. How many kids are we talking about? How many centers, government entities? Mm -hmm. Like, what does the Texas map look like where this issue is concerned? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so last numbers I've looked at, we've got about 50,000 kids in foster care at any given time. And that's in the formal foster care system. There's another process that happens at I, along with some other uh, family advocates, call it hidden foster care. And that's a system where the state isn't actually removing the kids and going through the courts to remove the kids and to take custody, but they're intervening in the lives of families and either forcing families to be under supervision for a period of time or influencing them to voluntarily place their kid with a relative or a friend while they go through services. Now, this happens outside of the traditional court system, there's no court oversight of this. Um, the department would view it as a means of prevention, a means of helping families get services to prevent them from pulling the kids into foster care. The problem there is you don't have court oversight. And the way that these arrangements come about, they call them voluntary. But if you don't agree as a parent, then the state's going to take your kid and pull them into foster care. So in my opinion, not truly a voluntary choice. When you look at those numbers, the size of our system is doubled. So if you count the kids in formal foster care, the kids in this voluntary um, hidden foster care system, that's about 100,000 kids um, that have contact with the state system. 
That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. And, you know, DFPS budget, I think, is about $2 billion. The new um, budget bill came out today. And so we're all digging through it at TPPF right now, trying to figure out what the opening bid is for funding the government this year. And it's going to be a tighter year because of COVID. Um, So there's going to be cuts that have to be made and tough decisions that have to be made. I think there's going to be reallocations of resources to more efficient means, um, which is a place that we can get some good reform done, I think. Take me through how you came to this issue. I mean, you can you can hear the passion for kids and their welfare and families in just your descriptions of, uh, of where things are and where, where they've been. But take me through a bit of the personal how you – there are lots of things as an attorney. You could have worked on everything from mergers and acquisitions to criminal law. But you you have uh, you have done this for a reason. Yeah. Things I could have made a lot more money doing, if yeah. we're being honest. Um, really, and I love the Austin Institute because of your focus on faith and the role of faith in civic life in this country. Um, as a person of faith, that's really how it came about. It was, for me, a moment where circumstances in my life lined up in a way that it was really clear to me that I was getting a message or God was trying to tell me, I want you in this world. Because when I went to law school, I had zero thought about child welfare adoption, any of that, and through some family circumstances, um, became aware of adoption and specifically international adoption is how I got my start. Um, uh, Several providential encounters happened um, that moved me towards studying family law while I was in law school. I had an amazing opportunity to be part of our law school's child advocacy clinic where I handled the cases of kids who were going through the foster care system um, and got a firsthand look at the reality of how that system works and how it impacts kids and how it impacts families. And it was all straight to the races from there for me. Um, I spent some time in the swamp in Washington, D.C. and was in-house with an adoption agency up there uh, managing their legal compliance, um, primarily focused on ensuring that our agency was complying with international law on the adoptions that we were facilitating. Um, After that, I moved into another policy organization, very similar to TPPF, but with a multi-state focus to help them launch their child and family policy uh, shop. Did that for a few years, spun off another nonprofit from that organization. Um, And then just a couple years ago, my predecessor at TPPF got a great opportunity and called me up and asked me if I wanted his job. And it was a perfect timing in my life. We'd moved to Austin. We just had our first kid and I was looking for something that didn't require me to be on an airplane constantly. And uh, this just was the right fit at the right time for me. And uh, I'm so grateful to be at TPPF and to be able to push for change um, on behalf of kids and their families. Well, that's that's really helpful. So take us from sort of the bad old days that you've you've given us um, you've given us a picture of. Starting in 2017, you mentioned major reforms. Mm-hmm. Um, go into a, a maybe a bit more detail about what you're seeing that's really working and how we how we know it's working. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that excites me about this new community-driven system, and we call it community-based care. I prefer to call it community-driven because it really is the community that is leading. It's not 
the government that's leading. Um, and that spurs innovation because you have ownership now within the community. This awareness bubbles up and people realize these are the kids in our neighborhoods that are being affected. You know, these are kids that my kids go to school with that are having these experiences. We should be doing more. You know, if I live in Austin, there's no reason why a child who gets pulled into foster care in Austin is going to, should be sent to El Paso. Somebody in Austin needs to be available to care for that child and to come around their family and help them find stability. So community-based care has really driven that type of innovation and some really difficult problems. We talked about kids in permanent care and kids in institutional settings at the top of this podcast. One of the big issues that community-based care has really been effective at addressing is reducing the number of kids who are placed in institutional settings. It's, you know, like a dorm and some of these places I've been to are more like prison um, than anything that you could really compare it to. Um, the innovation that the lead nonprofit agencies are driving has enabled new models of care to happen. So when you have a child who unfortunately has really significant issues, they've been through dramatic trauma, they likely have some mental health struggles, behavioral issues, they're challenging kids. And sometimes these kids need more intensive treatment for those issues. Previously, that was really handled for the toughest cases in these institutional settings. Under community-based care, you're having models where you have um, enhanced foster families. So one of the agencies up in Fort Worth has created this program where you have foster families where it's their full-time job. And they're trained to provide that high, high, high level of care. And that child who otherwise would have been in an institution is now living in a regular house going to school, and still getting the same level of treatment. And so their long-term outcomes are going to be much better than if had they been warehoused away in an institution somewhere. Um, so that, to me, is the really effective part of community-based care, not just the community buy-in, but the results that we're getting for children. Mm -hmm. I don't want to lead you in a direction that's that's not right, but what you just said, what it makes me think of is that when dealing with with these situations, it's tough choices, tough calls all the way down, right? Absolutely. And so very easy for the system to go wrong by pulling too much, pulling kids too much or too quickly. And also very easy to go wrong by not pulling them enough or quickly or quickly enough from a really abusive or bad situation. Right. And I can imagine that there might be some ways that pushing it down to the community helped with that, are we seeing what I would call more prudent judgments by having it down there at the local level? And is that because there's is there some training that we're doing to work on that issue? Because that's the in looking at the the child welfare system, the number one thing that jumped out to me was there are not going to be any easy choices here. Oh no, there's never easy choices, and that actually brings us really nicely into looking forward towards session because that question of how do we decide which kid gets removed and when that happens is something that the state is continuing to struggle with. Over the last several years, there have been a number of high-profile wrongful removal cases that have made the news because CPS has overstepped and they've intervened with a family where abuse and neglect was not occurring. Um, and that overreaction has alerted both the public and the lawmakers to a lack of 
good institutional controls within CPS um, and a lack of proper guidelines for those frontline caseworkers who have an incredibly difficult job and have to make incredibly difficult decisions, often at two in the morning when they're showing up to a house. It, we're doing a disservice to those frontline caseworkers if we're not giving them really clear guidelines on how to determine what is or is not something that the state needs to be involved with. Now, while community-based care has driven down the care issue of taking care of the kids in the system, the decisions around removals remain with the state. Uh, the state is still running child protective services. They run the investigations. They make the decisions. It's only after the child that has been removed that they're transferred to that community organization. So we're really focused with a number of legislators this session on reforming how we make the difficult decisions around removals. And one quick example of what we're dealing with is there are wide discrepancies across the state uh, regarding removals. In Taylor County, you are 10 times more likely as a child to be removed into foster care than in another part of the state. There's That's not because Taylor County is worse uh, as parents. There are amazing families in Taylor County. I love going to Abilene. Um, and it's an amazing community. They are not worse parents than the other parts of the state. And they're certainly not 10 times worse parents than other parts of the state. What that comes down to is the judgment calls that are being made by CPS in Taylor County are not matching up with judgment calls being made in other parts of the state. Um, you had a few cases. One um, was the Bright case out of Houston that happened uh, about two years ago where a small child fell down in the driveway and hit their head and it caused a skull fracture. It was a complete accident. There was one doctor in this hospital where the child went to that said, oh, I think this is abuse and pushed for these kids to be removed. And a series of really, really bad decisions were made within the department um, that ultimately led to the investigator taking the fifth uh, when the judge pressed him on why you made this decision. Um, and ultimately, the children were returned to the Bright family. And this is a much longer story. Um, and if your listeners are interested, I'm going to plug another podcast. I'm sorry about no, that. No, no, please uh, But there's an amazing podcast that just came out. NBC News did it with a podcast company called Wondery. It's called Do No Harm. And it goes into the details of the Bright case with the people who were actually involved with it. Um, it's a heart-wrenching and shocking story about a system that gets out of control. We, we will put a link to that in the description. Yeah, it's great. Um, and warning... It's hard to listen to at times because the mom actually recorded the removal and um, it's really difficult to listen to parents going through that agony of having their kids removed from their home. Um, but it shines a light on how we make these decisions is not always right. And in many cases, the decision to remove a child can be much more harmful for that child than leaving them in even what I would say is a non-ideal situation. As you dig into the reasons why kids get into foster care, 75% of removals are based on neglect. They're not physical or sexual abuse. That's about 25% when you put physical and sexual abuse together. 75% of kids are entering because of neglect. 
And we've done research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation that has found a statistical connection between living in poverty and having contact with the child welfare system. Um, One of our great policy analysts wrote a paper, and she found that if you live in one of the 25 poorest counties in Texas, you're statistically more likely to have interaction with child protective services over an allegation of neglect than if you live in one of the 25 richest counties in Texas. So there's a disparity there when it comes to poverty that's causing people to have contact with the system. And so our reform efforts need to be focused on keeping families together, strengthening them, bringing the community around them so that they can address some of these issues that are very real that they're struggling with, but aren't issues that are putting kids in imminent danger of harm. Mm-hmm. Normally, I would have to ask someone in, a, in an interview like this, like, make me care about your particular pet issue. But here we're talking about our kids, right? right? We're talking about the next generation of Texans. So I think I don't have to do that. I think everyone listening to this cares about kids. So suppose someone listening to this says, you know, I've never heard of this before, but I want to I find out more information. I want to get involved. What, what should I be doing? You've talked about the way that the care is now being pushed down to the community mm-hmm. level and communities are being empowered to take charge of the families in their own areas. Mm-hmm. What should my church be doing? What should my kids' private school, you know, our church school, what should they be doing? What should my neighbors and I be doing to be part of the solution in fixing this broken system? Figure out who in your community works with kids in the foster care system, figure out who works with families who are at risk of having their kids enter the foster care system. Um, In many parts of the state right now, as community-based care is rolling out, I said we had four regions that are operating. The department recently proposed four new regions to start up in the next two years. Um, Communities are already organizing and getting ready. Um, And there are networks that are already building uh, within different regions of the state. So figure out who those entities are that are working to get ready and just show up and say, hey, how can I help? As an individual, volunteer for a foster care agency, become a foster parent, become an adoptive parent. Um, My heroes in the foster care world are foster parents like a family that is in our church that my wife and I are really close with. They volunteered to be foster parents with zero intention to adopt. They viewed their role as taking care of a child who's in need and supporting that child's family so that child could go home. Approaching it with that attitude to me is the definition of sacrificial love because you are voluntarily entering into a very, very messy system and bringing a family who's not your own into your life with the goal of making their life better. And that's the one thing that I would encourage uh, your listeners to do is figure out how they can come alongside, befriend, and support families in their communities that might be struggling. Great. Is there, is there a link to kind of what those four major regional offices are that we can provide people to get them started? Yeah, you'll go through that? the Department of Family and Protective Services website, and they'll have a link on that front page for community-based care. Okay. And that landing page will have the regions and give okay. a lot more detail on how community-based care operates and identify those lead agencies. Um, the four regions, uh, Tarrant County, it's a group called Our Community, Our Kids. In Bear County, uh, it's 
a group called uh, the Children's Shelter or Family Tapestry is what they're operating community-based care under. Uh, up in the Lubbock area in the Panhandle region, you've got St. Francis Ministries. And then out in Abilene, in uh, the Taylor County and surrounding areas, you have a group called To Engage. Mm. Um, there's a group out in Midland, actually, that's called One Accord for Kids that's doing incredible work on organizing the community out in the Permian Basin to get ready for community-based care. Um, there are a number of great organizations. Those are the ones um, that are the most active right now that I have regular interactions with, and they're all just phenomenal organizations. And if your listeners are in any one of those regions, I'd encourage them to reach out. Great. We will, we will, uh, we will post information there. Um, let me ask about this to bring it back to the session. What sort of particular things? Let's let's get into some of the nitty gritty. What yeah. exactly reforms do do you think we might see this time? Where might they originate? So, for example, I I understand with the change in speaker that a lot of a lot of legislation is originating in the Senate this time. Though, of course, the House will catch up very quickly. I imagine with committee assignments coming out. Right. Um, whenever, whenever they're coming yeah. out. I think the House is in the lead right now with bills filed. They've got about 1,500 bills filed, okay. and I think it's a little over 250 in the Senate okay. at this point. But so, we expect that to start picking up. Yeah. So tell us what we're watching, what we're watching for, what kinds of reforms yeah. are up are up and what, you know, what we should be supporting in other words. So leading into this session, it's the most uncertain session I've ever worked on just because of COVID. Mm -hmm. We didn't really know what session was going to look like until about a week ago. And there's still several unanswered questions about what session is actually going to look like. But one thing that we knew for certain for the years leading up to session was that child welfare reform was going to be a priority issue for a number of reasons. Um, And I think the theme for child welfare reform in session this year is going to be prevention and accountability. Uh, The prevention aspect is driven largely by changes that the federal government made in 2018. Um, Congress passed a bill and President Trump signed it into law called the Family First Prevention Services Act as a part of the big budget that they pass every year. And the Family First Act is the biggest realignment of federal child welfare policy in over 30 years. And to try to make something very complicated, very simple, basically the federal government sends taxpayer dollars to states to help them run their child welfare systems under Title IV-E of the Social Security Act. So those Title IV-E dollars are usually earmarked for helping care for kids who are in foster care. What Family First did was it changed that calculus. And for the first time, the federal government said to the states that you can use these Title IV-E dollars for efforts aimed at preventing kids from going into the system. These are services that you can provide to families who are at risk, who are right on the edge, to keep that family together. And really what's exciting about that to me is it represents a cultural change in child welfare. We're no longer focused solely on we've got to save all of the children. We've got to pull them into foster care and get them adopted into better families. We are recognizing as our understanding of brain development um, matures that that act of removing a child in and of itself is traumatic and it has long-lasting impacts on that child. And in many ways, the decision to remove can be more harmful than the situation that the kid was in with their family, especially if the removal was neglect-related poverty. 
So with Families First, we're now focused on, okay, our first priority is preventing these kids from coming into the system and making sure that these families can be strong and stable. Now, as with any federal program, there are a bunch of strings attached. There's compliance issues that have to be worked out. And that's what the legislature is going to be focused on um, in the child welfare world, because for Texas, the requirements of the Family First Act come into force in October of this year. So we've got to do a lot of work to make sure we're ready to implement Families First, and we've got to make decisions about what our priorities are going to be on Families First. Um, TPPF just had our annual policy orientation last week, and we hosted a panel on this very issue. Um, And one of the topics that we ended up discussing on this panel was how do you make this decision on prevention? What families qualify for prevention? And the opinion, it's an opinion I agree with, Representative James Frank, who is the current chair of the House Human Services Committee, hopefully will be the um, continuing chair. He's an adoptive father himself um, and is very passionate about these issues. Um, But he expressed the opinion that we need to be hyper, hyper focused on those kids that are really on the edge. The ones that we know that but for some type of intervention and prevention service, they're going to be coming into the system. And that's the alternative to the other line of thinking, which is moving toward a much broader net that would bring more families into the system. And the drawback there is the government net now has gotten bigger, and we don't know necessarily that we've actually prevented a kid from coming in who would have otherwise come in. We could just be um, inserting ourselves as the government into the lives of families that would never have had any contact with government child welfare otherwise. Um, so with Families First, that um, is going to be a big lift this session for the legislature to provide direction to the department on how to effectively implement and responsibly utilize um, this new or different funding stream that's coming down from the federal government. Mm. Another thing that we're watching, obviously, is the continued rollout of community-based care and making sure that this new foster care system that we're designing and implementing in Texas is properly aligned with the Family First Act. Um, And there's a number of ways that we can go about doing that in terms of piloting prevention programs within the new community-based care regions, and ensuring that the right funding is going into community-based care, that we speed up the rollout and prioritize shifting Texas to what I firmly believe is the future of foster care, not just in this state, but in the country. I mean, Texas can be a pioneer in child welfare reform, which would be an amazing turnaround from just 10 years ago when we were in the dark days. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a really amazing story and so typical of of Texas in that what Texas decides it wants to lead on, it will lead on. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. so I think it's it's mostly at this point a matter of will. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as I myself am a a, a father of two adopted boys, so I you know, I want to say I I agree entirely with uh, Representative Frank. Um, about the need for, look, it's God who makes families. right? And so um, I think anything we can do to help strengthen families and keep them together is something the, the Institute is in, invested in, uh, both at a, you know, at, a, at a structural level, but also personally. That's, we've got skin in the game around here when it, when it comes to the family. 
Um, so I, I want to thank you for for your work. Um, I want to say we'll all be keeping a watch on this. I, I really think it's one of the most important stories that's developing and unfolding in Texas today. And really glad that there will be even more, that we're not just sort of resting on the laurels of having started the change, but are pressing forward uh, with even more uh, legislation and more reforms this this session. So we'll be watching for those and keep people up to date on those and hope to have you back at some point in the not too distant future to celebrate whatever the whatever great legislation we can get passed. I would love to be back. And if your listeners are interested in learning more about these issues and so many more that we didn't have time to discuss today, uh, you go to our website, texaspolicy.com. You click on the link that says issues and you can select family from the dropdown. And that will link you to all of our research and op-eds on the various issues within child welfare that we're focused on. Yeah, I think the big takeaway, I'm glad, I'm glad you did that. People should definitely go to the website and check out that information because the big takeaway for me from all of this, the overarching theme is that we've improved the foster care system by putting more of the responsibility uh, and the freedom back at the community level which is just another way of saying it's up to us. For every one of us in the towns we are, in the cities where we are, in the neighborhoods where we find ourselves, to find the families that need a helping hand to to be stronger and to stay together and to catch them before they fall into the system. I think it's crucially important that that's our state legislature's focus, but it also has to be communicated out and down the line that that needs to be kind of the focus of all of us is there are families out there struggling whom we can help and we can help make the difference for them. And we're talking about 100,000 kids. So this is an enormous number of kids, part of the next generation of Texans. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's something for all of us to do, a part for all of us to play. Absolutely. Well, we're really thankful today for your part and appreciate your time and joining us. Uh, this, again, is Tex Ledge, the Austin Institute's podcast about all things having to do with the Texas legislature. I am your host, Dr. Kevin Stewart, and I will see you next time. Thank you all for listening to Text Ledge, a podcast from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.